we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. For those of you who have been waiting all year for the first Peter Schiff Show podcast of the new year 2019, here it is. We finally got a day with enough worthwhile news that it made sense for me to do a podcast. I'll probably end up doing another one uh, tomorrow. You know, we get the non farm payroll numbers, the jobs numbers. We'll see if that's a big market mover. But we had a lot of movement in the markets today. All sorts of news came out as well, weighing on the markets. The Dow was down 660 points today, pretty much about the same drop that we had on that Christmas Eve. Now, I doubt that tomorrow will be followed by a repeat of Boxing Day where we get a thousand point rally. But we'll see. The, the excuse of the day was probably Apple. I mean, you could say that Apple took a bite out of the stock market today. Apple announced yesterday, just after the close, that its sales would be disappointing. And Apple stock was down just under 10%. It closed down 9.7%, pretty close to the lows of the day. Not the exact lows, but got to be one of the biggest losses. I haven't looked this up uh, in history for, for Apple. You know, Apple is very widely owned. You know, the Swiss Central Bank is a big holder of Apple stock, but, you know, a lot of uh, hedge funds own Apple. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett has a big position in Apple. It's pretty much in everybody's portfolio. Uh, so everybody got a rotten apple today with uh, the drop. In fact, Apple's now down almost 40%, 39% from its peak price. Remember, 
when it was a peak, it was over a trillion dollars. It was Apple and Amazon that were trillion dollar companies. Well, no more. I mean, Apple, again, has dropped not quite 400 billion in market cap from its peak, but that is a huge number. I think the market cap now is about 675 billion, still pretty big market cap, uh, but not the trillion dollar plus market cap it had not very long ago when everybody was uh, euphoric about the markets. Now, Apple is trying to sugarcoat this by blaming it on the foreign sales, maybe to deflect concerns about the domestic economy. In particular, they cited China, problems about China, you know, dealing with the trade war. Now, of course, if Apple is blaming China, they're, they're basically blaming President Trump, right? Because Trump is the reason for the trade war. And if the trade war is the reason that people in China don't want to buy iPhones, well, then you can blame Trump for the drop in Apple stock. In fact, you can blame Trump for everything that's going wrong. And the Democrats are going to do just that. In fact, Trump just, uh, I think it was last week or not this, this week, earlier in the week, talked about the big drop that we had in the stock market in December, and he attributed it to a glitch. I'm not really sure what kind of glitch he's talking about. I mean, it wasn't a glitch when the market was going up, but some glitch was there uh, to explain away the fact that it went down. But according to Donald Trump, he said the market is going much, much higher. He basically you know, guaranteed a huge stock market rally. He said it's going a lot higher, like this is a, you know, a buy signal uh, from Donald Trump. And you know, if the president is like begging you to buy stocks, pounding the table, you got to buy, you got to buy. You know, the smart money is doing the opposite. You want to you want to sell U.S. stocks when your leaders are, are, are touting the benefits of buying and how much higher uh, the market is going to go. In fact, Trump even claimed credit for the big drop in gasoline prices. You know, he put out this tweet the other day uh, where he said, do you think it's an accident that the price of gas went down? And he claimed credit for the big drop because he wants motorists and voters uh, to you know, credit him for the fact that gas is cheaper now than it was when he was elected. Well, you know, you live by that, you die by it, because by the time Trump is up for re-election, assuming he's still the sitting president and he runs for a second term, I think that oil prices will be back above $100 a barrel, uh, which is a pretty big call since they're below 50 right now. But I think that there's a good shot that that's going to happen. I'll talk a little bit more about why as this podcast progresses. But if Trump is going to claim credit for cheap gas, he's going to get blamed for expensive gas, just like he's going to get blamed for the economic bust, the recession, just like he's going to get blamed for the bear market. He claimed credit for everything when it was going well, and now he's going to be blamed and have to accept responsibility for things that are not going well. But getting back to today's stock market carnage, it was obviously deeper in the NASDAQ, although Apple is part of the Dow Jones now as well as the NASDAQ, but a lot more tech stocks in the NASDAQ that were down in sympathy. So the NASDAQ down 202 points. That's 3.04%. So a big move there, but it's not just uh, trade that is the issue. And of course, Apple's problems are not just made in China. I mean, yes, Chinese sales are weak, but they're going to be problematic all around the world, you know, because Apple has been relying on pricing power to drive its earnings. It hasn't been that they're selling a lot more iPhones. They've just been able to jack the price up every time they come out with a new one. And a lot of, you know, iPhone fans 
uh, go out and they buy the new phone and, and pay the ridiculous price. Well, you know, fewer and fewer people, I think, are going to feel that they need to buy the latest iPhone. I mean, the improvements are not that dramatic over the phones that people just bought. And people are running out of money. I mean, they're broke, right? Inflation is causing the price of a lot of things to go up. You don't have to buy another iPhone when the iPhone that you already have works just great. Meanwhile, competition is heating up. There are a lot of other phones that people can buy, but particularly, you know, in countries uh, like China. Uh, and so th th this problem is goes way beyond that. But I think the most important aspect of what happened today was not just the, the uh, bad news out of Apple, but the weak economic data that came out today and the way the markets responded to that weak data. Because, you know, you have two ways that the markets can react to economic data. It can be good news is good news or good news is bad news. Now, good news is good news means that the market reacts favorably to positive economic data because it's more concerned about uh, how a growing economy would impact earnings. But when you have bad news as good news, that generally means that, oh, the market's like bad news because bad news means the Fed may not hike rates or the Fed may not may cut rates. So when it's bad news is good news, the idea is that what's bad for the economy is good for the stock market because the Fed is going to try to stimulate the economy through cheap money, which ultimately stimulates the stock market. Whether it stimulates the economy or not is up for debate. I don't believe so. But pretty much everybody concludes or understands that when they print a bunch of money, or, you know, they stimulate higher stock prices. So that is the, the, the genesis uh, behind the bad news is, is good news. Well, today we got bad news and good news. And if you look at the way the market reacted, it really tells a story that it's good news is good news and bad news is bad news. And that is bad news for the U.S. stock market because a lot of bad news is coming. And, you know, this is what I think uh, the markets have been anticipating or traders because for a while and certainly in uh, December and a lot of the fourth quarter, people were worried that even though the economy was weakening, the Fed was going to keep hiking rates. And, and so that was causing some concern that the Fed was going to over-tighten and that was going to push the economy maybe into a recession uh, or certainly cut off growth. And so that was worrying the stock market. And the stock market was falling. But the dollar was still getting the benefit of the belief that the Fed was going to keep hiking rates. And that's what was keeping gold from really taking off, even though gold was up just over 5% during the month of December, which is its best month since January of 2017, when it was up about 5.4%. So that was a big move. Gold stocks were up to about 10% on the month, but that's not a big move, A, considering how low gold stocks were when December started. And that type of unexpected jump in the price of gold uh, should have had a bigger pop in gold stocks. It didn't because of this expectation uh, that the Fed is going to keep hiking rates or that expectation was there. And remember, what did I say? I said at the time that it didn't matter if the Fed hiked in December, that gold would go up as soon as the Fed hiked because gold has gone up every time the Fed has hiked. It goes down on anticipation of the next hike. But then as soon as the next hike happens, it goes up. What happens then is then the markets start anticipating the next hike after that, 
and then gold starts to go down again until the Fed delivers that expected hike and then gold pops back up and gold had been working its way higher doing this you know rate hike shuffle since gold bottomed out with the first rate hike in December of 2015 when gold was at 1050 and by the way gold was up almost 10 bucks today I think we're at 1293 uh, this is a a new high for this move gold stocks were generally higher today although some were actually down it wasn't a a big move but the difference now too is that there are no more rate hikes uh, that are being priced into the market. In fact, the probability now, after today's economic data, which I'm going to get to, but the probability now, official probability, is higher chance of a rate cut in March than a rate hike. I think the probability of a cut was 7%, and that probability is probably going higher, but the probability of a hike is lower than that. So you have a 7% probability of a rate cut and almost no percent probability of a, a rate hike. Now, if you remember, I was the only person out there, and I actually got to say it on Fox Business because I actually got on just before the Fed hiked in December. And I said on Liz Clayman's show, and of course I've said on this podcast many times, I said that if the Fed hiked rates in December, that it would be their last hike. And now pretty much everybody agrees with me because no one expects the Fed to hike. And if you also remember what I said, I said if the Fed hiked rates in December, not only would that be the last hike, but the next thing the Fed would do would be to cut rates. And now you're starting to see a higher probability that I'm right on that too, that the Fed is going to cut rates. But the way the markets initially viewed this uh, you know, pricing out of the rate hikes was that this was positive for the U.S. economy. Because if the markets were worried that an overly aggressive Fed would hike us into recession. If now the Fed is backing off and Fed speakers are more dovish now, in fact, we're going to hear from Powell tomorrow. We'll see how much more dovish he is. But other Fed guys have come out this week and have been sounding more dovish, right, especially since Trump had been pushing them in that direction. And now, you know, the markets were falling until we finally got that Santa Claus rally in large part due uh, to some backtracking by the Fed. So the markets were thinking, okay, now that the Fed is not going to hike anymore, well, we don't have to worry about the economy. The economy will be strong. Well, of course, if the economy is strong, then the Fed's going to hike. But forget about that. Their thinking was that, well, the economy is going to be strong, but the Fed's not going to hike. Right? And so it's a little bit inconsistent in their logic, but that's what they thought, that the Fed would back off and allow the economy to be strong. But what most people don't get yet, and they're, they're going to get it soon, is that it's not about the future rate hikes. They're irrelevant. It's about the past rate hikes. The Fed has already hiked enough to cause a recession, right? When you have an economy this indebted and this addicted to 0% rates, having, the Fed having moved rates up to two, two and a quarter, that's already enough. Even if they stop right here and never hike rates again, we are still going into recession. So it, it's too late for the Fed to stop that. Not that the Fed could have stopped it anyway. I mean, the, the, the recession was inevitable, right? The minute they slashed interest rates, you know, that was it. The minute they went to zero and did QE, I knew that if they, you know, if they took the punch ball away, the party would end. The thing is that they were able to take it away a little bit and the party kept on going for a while. Remember, 
The reason I said, and I went into this on my last podcast, the reason I said the Fed couldn't raise rates is I knew that once they started the process of normalization, they would have to abort it, that they wouldn't be able to you know, continue and they would lose so much credibility when they had a reverse course and go back to zero if they had to you know, start expanding the balance sheet again after they tried to shrink it. And it looked like I was going to be right. They raised rates once. And the markets fell apart. They didn't raise them again until after Trump was elected. And then because of all the hoopla and all the hysteria about the greatest economy ever, all right, the Fed was able to slip in uh, a few more rate hikes uh, before everything collapsed. But everything is now in the process of collapsing, and it doesn't matter. And that's what the markets don't get. Because if the markets did understand that the U.S. economy is going into recession, despite the fact that they no longer believe the Fed is going to keep hiking. If the markets believe that, the dollar would be getting killed right now. It's not. I mean, the dollar was down today, but by about as much as it was up yesterday. So the dollar index is not dropping. In fact, we had a lot of action in the currency markets last night. The Japanese yen was very strong. It surged. In fact, it almost caused a lot of other currencies to flash crash against the yen, like the dollar. The Australian dollar, of course, was even lower against the Japanese yen. Interestingly enough, though, the Australian dollar did turn around and close positive against the U.S. dollar today after being down quite a bit, but it was really caught up in some cross-trading against the yen. A lot of people were piling into the Japanese yen, and when that happens, that's a bad sign. People are not buying the yen because they're bullish on stuff. They're bearish and they're buying the yen, and the, the gold market has been pretty much positively correlated to the yen, so both the Japanese yen and gold are rising. Treasuries have also been rising. There was a bid in treasuries, uh, but I think that bid is actually going to go away uh, when the Fed has to go back to quantitative easing. Because, again, what people don't get, too, apart from the fact that we're going into recession, when they get surprised by that reality, that's when the dollar is really going to tank because now it's not just going to be the Fed not hiking rates. The Fed's going to be cutting rates. And, of course, they're not just going to cut rates. They're going to go into quantitative easing because the economy goes into recession. Going from two to zero is nothing. The only way they're going to be able to get stimulus is to go to quantitative easing. The problem is the stimulus is not going to stimulate the U.S. economy. All the stimulus is going to be of the foreign economies, in particular, the emerging markets. Because what's going to happen this time is when the Fed slashes rates and goes to QE, the dollar is going to collapse. The mirror image of what it did in 2008, when the dollar was already at a record low and surged, this time the dollar is going to tank. And that means the pain is going to be immediate for the United States because that means prices are going way up, not just oil prices, food prices. Everything's going to get a lot more expensive. And that increase in consumer prices is going to act like a tax hike during the recession. And the increase in inflation is going to push up the inflation premiums embedded in the bond market. So not only is it going to cost Americans more money to buy stuff, their, their cost of paying interest on the stuff they already bought is going to go up. This is going to be a vicious uh, recession, inflationary recession. But when the dollar tanks, that is going to relieve all the other global economies. Uh, you're going to see tremendous gains 
uh, abroad in those economies uh, as they are relieved of the burden of a strong dollar. And interest rates, interest rates all over the world will be coming down as they're rising in the United States. Because right now, the reason that interest rates around the world are so high is because everybody believes that the U.S. government is going to be crowding out all the private savings all around the world because they believe the Fed is going to be shrinking its balance sheet. And so they think all the government borrowing is going to have to come at the expense of other borrowers like emerging market economies. They think there's going to be this dollar shortage. But when they realize that the Fed is going to be supplying all the liquidity, uh, then interest rates will be able to fall in other parts of the world as they actually rise in the United States. You know, the national debt is now 21.91 trillion. We're going to hit 22 trillion this month. And of course, now that Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House, right, she just, you know, sat today as the new Speaker. And of course, Donald Trump, who gave a press conference today, just before I started recording this podcast, and I was looking forward to the press conference. And all Donald Trump did, apart from congratulating Nancy Pelosi and promising to work with her, right, on infrastructure and stuff like that. And that's not a promise. That's a threat. Right. When the president is going to work with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, nothing good is going to come out of that. And if he's talking about spending money on infrastructure, it's going deeper into debt. And in fact, one of the first things it looks like uh, the Democrats are doing in Congress is they want to change the rules on increasing the national debt limit to make it a lot easier. See, the way it works right now, if Congress passes a bunch of spending, and we're up against the debt limit. First, they pass all the spending that they want, right? They, 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 they vote for whatever, all the goodies that they want to pro- deliver to their constituents. But then if they're up against the debt limit, they have to now have another vote on raising the debt ceiling so that they can borrow the money to pay for all the spending that they just authorized. Now, that was always a politically embarrassing vote, right? Nobody wants to vote for a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling. And of course, whenever they have to raise the debt ceiling, since everybody knows that, you know, you can't vote against it, they try to load it up with other stuff that they, you know, they try to slip that stuff in there. And of course, sometimes the Republicans in the past have used the debt ceiling. Uh, We won't vote for this unless we get something. So what the Democrats want to do now to make it much easier for the debt ceiling to go up without all the politics and without, you know, members having to vote for it, what the new rules state is that whenever new spending bills are passed, the debt ceiling will automatically go up to accommodate whatever spending Congress has, which basically is a way of eliminating the debt ceiling without actually voting to eliminate it, right? Because if the ceiling is raised automatically whenever we spend money, then what is the point of a ceiling? I mean, there's no ceiling at all. Of course, there never really was a ceiling, given the fact that we raised it every time we got to it, right? But the fact that we don't even have to raise it anymore, that it's on autopilot, I mean, so that, that, you know, takes away even the pretense of a ceiling. And if we were able to increase the national debt so much when you had a vote to raise the ceiling, imagine how much faster the debt's going to go up when you no longer have to vote to raise it. Now, the Senate hasn't passed that yet, so they still might have to vote to increase the debt limit in the Senate unless they sign on to this nonsense there too. But of course, you know, there's only two more years probably where the Republicans control the Senate, right? Because the Democrats are going to get the Senate when they get the White House. 
in, in 2020. So all this is going to change in 2021. But that's just a small taste of how they're you know getting everything ready for the deficit. And in fact, the left wingers, the Democratic socialists, are trying to challenge the Pelosi wing, which I guess is the conservative wing of the Democratic Party, because they want to get rid of these pay-go rules. You know, they, they have these rules now where if you vote for new spending, you have to vote for new taxes or you have to vote to cut something in order to so-called pay for your new spending. And the Democratic Socialists want to get rid of that because they think it's an obstacle to all the legislation that they want, right? They want free this and free that, and they don't want to pay for the free stuff. So they want to make it easier for the government to get bigger and bigger without having to cut anything. And that is exactly the direction that we're headed. Because, you know, if we were running trillion-dollar deficits, right, because the national debt is up more than $2 trillion since Trump became president, not since he was elected. Just since he was uh, inaugurated, the national debt has gone up by more than $2 trillion. So we're, we're already pacing just over a trillion a year. But this is during the boom, right? This is during the greatest economy in the history of America, right, occurring to Trump. Well, since the back half of the Trump presidency is going to be characterized by the bust, then we're going to be looking at $2 trillion a year budget deficits. In fact, I think that the budget deficit might go from 22 trillion to 24 trillion in this calendar year. And if we're going to increase the national debt by 2 trillion a year when the Republicans control the Senate and the White House, we're going to do 3-4 trillion a year when the Democrats control uh, the House, the Senate, and the White House. So none of that is possible, of course, without the full cooperation of the Federal Reserve. They have to do quantitative easing like it's going out of style, although maybe they won't be able to call it quantitative easing when it's that flagrant, right? It's just debt monetization, banana republic style, only America is the new banana republic. Of course, the most interesting aspect of the press conference was how quickly the president got the hell out of there. I mean, after he congratulated Nancy Pelosi, then he uh, talked a lot about the wall and how badly we need the wall. And after all, it's the wall funding or now the barrier. Sometimes he doesn't even want to call it the wall to make it maybe more palatable, but whatever it is, he had somebody out there uh, to talk about how we need the wall to keep out the criminals and the illegals. And so he spoke about that for a little while and then cut it short and then left. And you have a room full of reporters dying to ask the president all sorts of questions. And he was out of there like a bat out of hell. Didn't take a single question, which is not normal for the president. I mean, normally he loves to be in front of reporters. He loves to field those questions. And he didn't want any of it. I mean, because I know people were dying to ask him uh, about a lot of things, probably including the market getting killed today and what's happening with Apple. And there were probably were a lot of questions that the president was not comfortable answering. I mean, he was comfortable answering questions when everybody thought the economy was great and the stock market was booming. But now that the economy is tanking and the stock market boom has turned into a bust, he is not nearly as comfortable uh, fielding questions from reporters. So I think he wanted to mitigate any potential damage, additional damage, by just getting getting out of Dodge as quickly as he could. So again, none of this stimulus is going to result in a stronger U.S. economy. It's all going to weaken the U.S. economy. And people have been lulled into this false sense of of confidence that it's going to work because they think it worked last time. It didn't work last time. It just blew up a bigger bubble 
But now this bubble is so big that there's no way to blow a bigger one. And we're just going to reap the the consequences immediately. And so the stimulus is going to be the relief rally heard around the world uh, when the dollar plunges and the American economy is no longer sucking the lifeblood out of all of our trading partners. I mean, this is the biggest irony because you got everybody talking about how America is winning the trade war, that we've got China up against the wall, we got it where they want them, that we have the strongest economy, and the world is uh, is so weak. It's actually the opposite. It's the American economy that's in the most trouble. The global economy is going to get better. In fact, everything that is going to happen is going to be the opposite of what people expect, right? From the stock market where people expect the, the U.S. stock market to keep going up. It's not. It's going down. Uh, People expect the economy uh, to, to do well. In fact, you know, in investments, they generally try, I don't know, it's not like a conspiracy, but the way the markets work, a lot of times, the most amount of people get set up to lose the most amount of money. And that's what I think is going to happen. You've had all these American investors who have piled into overpriced U.S. stocks over the years, you know, including, unfortunately, Several of my clients or many of my former clients who are now in the U.S. stock market. I was talking on this podcast ever since Trump was elected and particularly, you know, kind of the latter half of 2017 and most of 2018. My clients were calling me up. Peter, I can't wait anymore. I've missed out on too much. I got to get in on the U.S. stock market, you know. And so you've got a lot of your Pacific ex-clients who got into the U.S. stock market near the highs. And I'm sure they're still in there. I doubt they pulled out yet. Uh, they may pull out in a year or two after they've lost a lot more money. But I think more importantly than the money they're going to lose, you know, in the U.S. market is the money they're not going to make by abandoning my strategy too soon. You know, I mean, yes, I mean, our accounts are not, you know, going up a lot. I mean, we were up today. The Dow was down over 600 points and our accounts were all up today. They weren't up a lot, but they were up a little. But that's only because the dollar's not tanking. That's because gold is not soaring because people haven't figured this out yet. They're going to, right? Because remember, hardly anybody understands what's going to happen. Gradually, right, the light bulbs are going on, but they're not all on, right? They haven't connected all these dots, but it's not going to be too much from everybody thought the Fed was going to keep hiking, and now nobody thinks the Fed's going to hike. That happened very quickly. Well, the change to the Fed's about to cut because we're in recession is also going to happen quickly. You know, I saw this guy on uh, CNBC today being interviewed, you know, talking about how the recession is going to happen a lot sooner than we think. And the the host of the show said, wait a minute, you know, Larry Kudlow was just on television a month ago saying that there's no recession anywhere in sight, that everything is great. And, you know, there's no signs of a recession. I mean, how, you know, was Kudlow wrong? And of course he was wrong. So the guy said, yeah, Kudlow was wrong. But then he said, well, you know, he was making his assessment based on the data that he had at the time, and the data's changed. The data hasn't changed. Anybody that understands economics would know that we were headed for a massive recession. You don't need this new data uh, to uh, inform you of that. But the reality is, Cutlow didn't look at any data. Cutlow just is optimistic. He's just saying everything's going to be great because we have a Republican president. And that's what Cutlow does when there's a Republican president. He talks about how great it's going to be. But none of this is going to play out well at the polls, right, when they hang this recession around Trump's neck, right, like the albatross, because he 
claim credit for this boom and his top economic advisor said, there's nothing to worry about. There's no recession anywhere in sight. And then within a few months of that statement, we could be in recession. And again, this is not just going to be a recession. It's going to be the recession. It is going to be much worse than the one that we now call the Great Recession. So it's either going to be called the Greater Recession or we're going to rename that one. Or maybe it'll be the Great Recession 1 and the Great Recession 2, like we have World War II and World War One. But once the Democrats take over, it's going to be a Great Depression. No question about that. But it's going to be an inflationary depression. But let me get back to the economic news that came out today and how the markets reacted to it and why I think this is an important uh, so important thing to take away from the action. So early this morning, we got the ADP number, which is the private employment number that always comes out uh, the week of the non-farm payroll numbers. Normally, we get it on a Wednesday, uh, but today we got it on Thursday, and you know we get the official number tomorrow. And they revised down the prior month, which was initially 179,000. They revised that down to 157. But the consensus for December was 175,000. And we blew that away. 271,000 jobs. Now, I mean, that doesn't even make any sense to me that we created that many jobs in December. So I don't know. I mean, it seems like an aberration. We'll see what kind of revisions we get next month. But the Dow was down about 350 points or so just before that number came out. And that number caused a rally. The market rallied to down around 200 points. It was a pretty big rally. And it came immediately after that number came out. And in fact, gold, which was up about eight bucks, seven, eight bucks, just before the number came out, sold off and it was only up about two or three bucks. So the market liked that number, right? And the reason the market liked that number is because they already believe that the Fed's not hiking. So it didn't matter that we got a strong number because it didn't change anything about the Fed, but it meant that the economy was stronger and that would be good for the stock market because the stock market is pricing in earnings growth. And in order to get earnings growth, you need a stronger economy. They're not pricing in more cheap money. They don't believe they're going to get help from the Fed. They just think the Fed is no longer going to be a headwind. But they need the tailwind of an economic growth to justify the multiples and to justify, you know, the, 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 the prices. So when we got good economic data, the market reacted to the good news by rising. Right? It didn't sell off immediately. I remember not too long ago, if we got strong data, the market would tank because that meant, oh, the Fed is more likely to hike rates. Nobody is worried about rate hikes anymore. They're worried about economic growth. And so good news is good news. But we got some bad news later in the day. And as soon as we got that bad news, the market really collapsed. But before I get to that bad news, I want to talk about some other bad news that came out earlier in the day. One of it was just the uh, weekly jobless claims which actually went the opposite way. Uh, we had a move up. We revised the prior week from 216,000 to 221,000. And the consensus of 217,000 for this week, we blew that away. We ended up at 231,000. So we're, we're moving back up. Remember, 240,000, I think, is the key number. We almost got to it last time. We pulled back. Now we're headed back up again. I think if we break above 240, we're going to surge very fast 
in, uh, in unemployment claims. And one place that the unemployment claims are already moving up is in construction. In fact, as part of the challenger layoff reports that came out earlier today, we saw that the layoffs in the construction industry surged by the most ever, even more than during the financial crisis, the biggest monthly layoff ever of construction workers. Now, that does not bode well, nor does the uh, information we got today on mortgage applications. In the month of December, they were down 9.8%. That is a huge drop. We're now down year over year 21% in mortgage applications. But even more important than that, mortgage applications right now are at an 18-year low. 18 years. When is that? 2001 since mortgage applications were this low? That means that they're lower than they were in 07, 08, 09. That was the depths of the Great Recession and housing bust, yet fewer people are applying for mortgages now than they were doing it then. I mean, what does that tell you about how much worse it's going to get when we actually have the big drop and we're actually in a recession? And one of the reasons that the layoffs are going to get so much worse in housing, and it's not just construction workers, right? There's all sorts of uh, people that earn a living in industries that are related to buying and selling of homes, right? Obviously, you got the realtors, right? They make commissions when people buy and sell homes. You got the movers. They make money when people move in and out of homes. Uh, you got the lenders in the banks and the mortgage uh, brokers. They make money when people take out new mortgages to buy new homes. One of the things that people tend to do when they buy new homes is they change stuff, right? You buy someone's house and it's decorated the way the previous owner liked it. So you do some remodeling. And so those guys get money. And then you buy new furniture because the furniture in your old house doesn't work for the new house, right? So now you got to go spend money there. So there's all sorts of economic activity that results from houses changing hands. Plus you have, you know, the construction, you have building of new homes, right? Well, why is that going to be so different this time. The reason is you kept or the Fed kept interest rates really low, zero for like what, seven, eight years, and then gradually raised them. So during that time period, mortgages went down. Uh, 30-year fixed rate mortgages, you could get under 4%. There, you know, I've got one. I got one on my Connecticut house. It's the only mortgage I have uh, uh, on a property. Uh, most of the properties, I, I just don't have a mortgage on them. I just have the one mortgage. Uh, but I, I, I'm fixed. I, I fixed for 30 years at, uh, at three and five eighths. Um, and so there are a lot of people that are fixed with these really low mortgages, right? And mine's a, mine's a jumbo. It's a pretty big loan at, at, a, at, a, at a very low rate. And um, so a lot of people have these low rates, sub 4% or even in the low fours. Now, where are rates now? Well, now they're around five, right? Well, if somebody's got one of these super low rates, why are they going to move? Or how could they afford to sell the house they're in now and buy a different house? Because the mortgage is not portable. You can't take the mortgage from one property and move it to your new purchase. So if you buy a new house, you got to take out a brand new mortgage at the higher rate. And so that makes moving a lot less affordable, especially if the other house you're buying is more expensive. And that's what a lot of people did, right? Realtors said, hey, you buy your starter home and then you trade up to a bigger home. Well, not only have real estate prices gone up, but now the mortgage rates are much higher. So a lot of people who are in their starter home 
are going to find out that that's they're finishing in their starter home. They are stuck in their starter homes. That's not the start. That's the finish. They're not going anywhere, right? Maybe it's going to be cramped if they have more kids, but they got to stay where that low mortgage is. So that cuts back on the number of homes for sale because people can't afford to move. They're, they're stuck where they are. It also makes it harder for people uh, to move for a job. If you get a new job in another city or another state, uh, but you can't afford to buy a house in the other state because you know you can't afford the current higher mortgage rate. So you're just going to have to stay there because you're a prisoner of your low mortgage. But also for the new people that want to buy these houses, these houses that were initially sold based on the fact that borrowers can borrow money below 4% and now that they can't. And in fact, the teaser rates or the, the arms, people used to be able to get an arm for one and a half, two 2%. You can't do that anymore because the arms now are almost 5 5%. So at the same time, the current owners are locked in, the new buyers are locked out. So the overall transactions in real estate is going to plunge based on higher mortgage rates. And mortgage rates are going to keep moving up even if the Fed cuts rates to zero. I think that mortgage rates are going to get more expensive due to inflation premiums being built in uh, to the mortgage market. And, you know, which is going to be a function of a weak dollar and all that. So this should be a much bigger housing bust than the last one as far as the impact it has on the overall housing industry. Because the Fed is not going to be able to rescue the markets. It's not going to truncate that crisis. The, the crisis is going to play out. And so real estate prices could fall a lot more. The layoffs could be a lot bigger. And it's, again, it's not just going to be residential. It's going to be commercial. Uh, the commercial bust is going to be much bigger. In fact, we didn't even have a commercial bust last time, but we're going to have it in spades this time. So this is just the beginning. And so the layoffs are going to be enormous. And that is the, the type of economic data that will get the Fed uh, to do something. You know, once we get these really bad uh, layoffs and the big uh, increases in unemployment, I don't know if that's going to start with the December number we get tomorrow. Certainly, if the ADP number is any indication, it's not going to start in December. Uh, but I would think uh, January, February, early next year, we're going to really start to see the uh, the jobs numbers weaken considerably. And that should increase the probability that the Fed will start cutting rates as early as its March meeting. And again, I don't think the Fed can cut by a quarter point. I think it has to go all the way to zero. I mean, a quarter is just asking for trouble. The markets will tank if the Fed just cuts a quarter. In fact, they may tank if it goes to zero. I mean, I think that the markets will eventually bottom out because if you create enough inflation, prices will go up. But the market's not going to stop falling as soon as the Fed cuts. The market's not going to stop falling as soon as the Fed uh, launches QE. It may have a bounce, uh, but I think it's going to have a ways to fall before it ultimately bottoms out it's you know people maybe will think oh you know if the fed just cuts rates the market's going to bounce i mean that's not what happened last time i mean it, you know it basically it, it wasn't until the, the the fed the fed was down at zero the first hike cut didn't do anything to stop the market from falling it wasn't until rates got to rock bottom that the market bottomed and the fed was launching qe and, and so you know a lot of this stuff has got to happen remember i said too on previous podcasts that just talking about not hiking rates will do nothing Right? And that's all we are now. All we're at now is where the Fed is kind of backing off the hikes. Right? That's nothing. The Fed is going to have to do a lot more. It's going to have to act a lot. It can't just talk. It's going to have to act. And action is going to be cutting rates 
ending QT, launching QE, but that's not going to be a panacea. That might create a bounce, uh, but ultimately we're going to make new lows. Now, at some point we'll bottom out, but not in terms of gold. The market's going to keep falling in terms of gold. It's going to keep falling in terms of other currencies because all they're going to do to save the stock market is sacrifice the dollar. And so if you end up with more dollars, but the dollars have lost more value than the quantity of that you have extra, then you're still worse off. And there are going to be a lot of people who have more money, but they're going to be a lot poorer because the money they have is not going to enable them to buy the things that they want. But the big number that came out today that did a lot of damage was the December ISM. And the prior month was at 59.3. And the consensus was a drop to 57.9. And instead, we dropped all the way down to 54.1. So it was a much bigger drop than had been expected. In fact, from a monthly basis, it was the biggest monthly drop uh, since the 2008 financial crisis. So, I mean, that, I mean, that's, you know, if you have to go back to the 08 financial crisis to see a drop like that, then obviously something's wrong, right? And we are now at the lowest level in the ISM since November of 2016. Now, that's when Trump was elected in November of 2016. So the ISM is all the way back down to where it was when he was elected. So we've erased the gains. Now, of course, the next thing is that the ISM is going to be below where it was when Trump was elected. In fact, soon I think the ISM is going to be below 50. And 50, above 50 is expansion. Below 50 indicates retraction. So when the ISM is below 50, it means that you're pretty much in a recession. And that is exactly where we're headed. And as soon as that number came out, the market tanked. Right, the Dow was still only down about 200-ish or so before that uh, number was released because we got that rally back based on the stronger than expected ADP number, and now we got weak economic data and the market tanked. Again, we got strong economic data or stronger than expected, and the market went up. We got weak data, the market went down. That pretty much tells you that. Bad news is bad news, and good news is good news. So it's not the Fed that is driving the markets right now. It is earnings, and in order to get the earnings, you need a strong economy. And so evidence of a weakening economy is hurting the stock market. And since we're going to continue to get weak economic data, the stock market is going to continue to fall until the Fed finally acknowledges the weakness means a recession and starts to cut rates. Because just leaving them the same does nothing. And they also have to call off quantitative tightening. Because as long as they're committed to quantitative tightening, that is going to add insult to the injury that is being experienced uh, by investors in the U.S. stock market. And again, when they finally ride to the rescue uh, by admitting they were wrong and trying to come up with a reason to explain why they were wrong, they'll probably blame it on Trump and trade and stuff that they couldn't figure out, right? Trump's going to be the scapegoat on this. And he's made, he's made it very easy for the Fed to blame him, right? Um, but it is not going to work. And, you know, it would have been even worse. We didn't get the numbers for construction spending. They were supposed to come out today. But because of the government shutdown, right, the Commerce Department wasn't able to release the data. So, I mean, if, but if the government was open and the Commerce Department was in business, right, we would have got even more bad economic news. So the fact that with the government was shut down, that probably spared the market of an even extra dose of bad news. I want to just finish up the podcast, though, just talking about an article I read 
in the New York Times. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, it goes around, comes around, right? So the Bernie Sanders campaign now is being accused in this article uh, in the New York Times of sexual uh, discrimination and harassment during the uh, the campaign, the 2016 presidential campaign, right? So all these allegations are coming out. And I read through this story. It's a long story in the New York Times. But, you know, one of the things that is uh, being alleged is that they were hiring too many white men uh, at the Sanders campaign, right? There weren't enough uh, people of color. There weren't enough women. And supposedly this is the result of discrimination. First of all, you know, most of the people that end up working for campaigns work for campaigns because they believe in the candidate, right? A lot of them, of course, are volunteers, uh, but a lot of them are paid. But, you know, you could work for anybody, usually, not always, but usually you work for a candidate that you believe in, right? And it certainly makes it easier for you to work hard for a candidate that you believe in than somebody that you don't believe in, right? So people who believed in Sanders, they wanted to work on the Sanders campaign as volunteers or as paid workers, People who believed in Hillary Clinton, well, they would have wanted to work in the Hillary Clinton campaign. Now, Hillary Clinton dominated the black vote. I mean, Sanders got a very small percentage of the black vote. After all, right, um, Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill Clinton, was really the first black president. And so black people as a group supported Bill Clinton, and that support basically endured to Hillary Clinton. So to the extent that blacks were going to work on a democratic campaign where would you expect them to go you would expect them to go to the hillary clinton campaign i mean after all you know almost all black democrats were voting for hillary so you would expect most of the black democrats who wanted to work for a campaign to work for the clinton campaign so the fact that there were not that many blacks working on the sanders campaign makes perfect sense it's got nothing to do with discrimination Nick sanders wasn't trying to prevent blacks from working on his campaign he probably was upset that there weren't more blacks who wanted to work for his campaign if sanders could have won the black vote he would have had the nomination he'd probably be president right now same thing for women right hillary clinton was making an appeal to women right women wanted the first woman president Right. And they didn't care if that woman was a criminal. Right. They just wanted a woman. And that was Hillary Clinton. And so to the extent that you were a Democratic woman and you wanted to be active in a campaign, chances are you'd be active in the Clinton campaign. Right. That's why the Sanders campaign was mostly white men. Right. Because they were not attracted to the, the femaleness of Hillary you know, or the, you know, the so-called blackness of Hillary being associated with, with Bill Clinton. And so white men were going to the Sanders campaign by choice. It wasn't because the Sanders campaign was discriminating. This is a bunch of nonsense. But of course, you know, the, all this stuff about discrimination is a bunch of nonsense. Probably, though, the biggest bunch of nonsense in this article was some of the sexual harassment stuff. Now, there was this one woman, apparently, She's really upset that she was sexually harassed by this guy because she didn't like the way he felt her hair. Now, apparently, this guy came up to this woman and complimented her on her hair, right? Oh, your hair looks really nice or shiny or curly or something like that. And then he asked the woman if he could touch her hair. Now, the woman said yes. Now, she could have said no, right? And then I suppose if he had touched her hair anyway, maybe she'd have had, you know, had a point. But she said, yes, go ahead, touch my hair.
So then he touched her hair. But now she claims it's harassment because he touched it in a sexual way. Now, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, how many different ways can you touch hair? I mean, he he ran his fingers through her hair. I mean, what did she think he meant when he asked if he could touch her hair? I mean, did he want to just like take the tip of his finger and just poke it for a second? I mean, maybe she should have been more specific and had some ground rules for how the hair touching was going to commence. But, you know, if somebody asks you, can I touch your hair? And you say, yeah, go ahead and touch it. I mean, pretty much you got to be prepared for anything, you know, as far as hair touching goes, right? If you're not going to qualify your, yes, go ahead and touch my hair by saying, you know, don't touch it like this and don't touch it like that. So apparently, I don't know, the guy goes to town on her hair, really, you know, really caresses it. And now that's sexual harassment. Now, I mean, I don't even know apparently when she complained about it and why people should take this seriously, but come on. I mean, that's now sexual harassment? I mean, sexual harassment should be sleep with me or you're fired, right? Sleep with me or you're not going to get a promotion, stuff like that. That's sexual harassment where you use your power at your job to coerce a woman into having sex with you that otherwise wouldn't have sex with you, right? That would be sexual harassment. All the rest of this is nonsense. I mean, just making a comment that somebody may be offended by, and now that's sexual harassment? No, that's life. That's how life is. Sometimes you get offended, and sometimes you don't. If some guy touches your hair, especially when you give him permission to touch your hair, and then he touches it, you haven't been sexually harassed. Your hair hasn't even been sexually harassed, even if you think the guy touching your hair was thinking about sex. And after all, if a guy asks a woman if he could touch her hair, He's probably got something sexual on his mind. It's not like we get off just touching women's hair. I mean, obviously, he thought that was probably the opening to something bigger. So she should have cut him off, right? She should have said, no, you can't touch my hair. Keep your hands off my hair, right? That would have been the appropriate response if she didn't want anything to do with this guy. But she lets the guy touch his hair, and now she's upset that he takes it the wrong way. I mean, you know, but I don't know what other examples were in there. I didn't really see any specifics. But this is the kind of nonsense. But this is what's happened. We've lowered the bar so much because guys are so afraid, right, to, you know, to stand up against this nonsense that they just allow any kind of conduct, right, to be considered sexual harassment, right? No matter what happens, we keep lowering the bar, lowering the bar, lowering the bar. And then, of course, you diminish legitimate sexual harassment where people are actually getting sexually harassed. And now any kind of comment or any kind of action, it's all in the same category. There is no a concept of degree or proportionality. And, you know, all we've done is make it so much harder to employ men and women in the same workplace, in the same office. We've opened up a can of worms, which the lawyers love because they make all sorts of money on this, these frivolous, ridiculous things. And now, of course, you make it so much harder. You know, I was talking to this guy the other day who was in the entertainment industry. He's out here in, in, in Puerto Rico for the holidays. I was just talking to this guy, and he was in the uh, the entertainment industry working for some of the networks and just pointed out that there was some guy that, you know, tried to get a job at, at the network. But in at his past uh, work, you know, he had had a problem where somebody had accused him, some woman had accused him of something, and, you know, there was no evidence that it happened. He had just some kind of mark on him where he was accused. And it wasn't even, it was just saying something that maybe offended somebody. I mean, not like he, you know, not real sexual harassment, but just some kind of comment. There was some report that, he, and 
And, and that was it. They said, oh, we can't even consider hiring this guy. They couldn't even take a chance because let's say you hire somebody and at a previous job, um, there was an allegation that they said something that offended some woman. And now you hire that guy knowing that he did that. You now expose yourself to greater liability if it happens again, right? And so in order to mitigate the chances that you may get caught up in a lawsuit, if anybody has anything on their record where any woman has said anything, then that guy is done. I mean, certainly, you know, in, in, in certain industries like network television, right, where you get these sexual harassment allegations all the time now. And of course, I guess any industry where you have a predominance of attractive women, there are a lot of attractive women that are working in television. I mean, that's that's part of the reason they're there, right? It's a glamorous job, but obviously if you're going to be on camera, you know, you need to look, look nicer than people who are not on camera. But a lot of attractive people, you know, are gravitate to these jobs. And I bet a lot of the guys hiring them have hired them because they're, they're attractive, uh, which is something that probably has to stop. Uh, but so in industries like that, I mean, this is, you know, it's like you're, 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 you're done. You know, you got a black mark on you because some woman, you know, you know, was offended by something you might have said. And um, so I've said this many, many times. This this is going to come back. And who is going to get hurt the most? Women. Right. Women are going to be the biggest losers in this campaign to turn every man into a sexual predator and every inadvertent comment, anything that a man could say, you know, is spun as some kind of sexual harassment, because obviously people are looking for a payday, right? It's an easy way to make money. You claim sexual harassment, and most women, I think, who claim it are claiming it because they're going to get paid, right? That, that's why they're doing it. They want a settlement. They want money as a result of, of this supposed uh, sexual harassment. But they're gonna, these women are going to make it so much worse for all the other women, because the vast majority of women, I don't think, believe in this nonsense. I don't think they participate in this nonsense. But you have, you know, the actions of a few, right, a few bad apples spoiling the, t- the entire bunch. And the, 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 the group that is going to suffer most from this is not going to be men. Yes, men will suffer too, but I think women will suffer more. <laughs>